Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome to another perspective, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is my second enlisted guest entering basic military training in 2004 and started his career in aerospace ground equipment. Throughout his time in service, he has held many positions, including NCOSE of Whiteman's Honor Guard, Chief of Public Health Operations at Eglin Air Force Base, and also hosts the Hero Front podcast, which won the 2022 number one veteran podcast of the year. Ladies and gentlemen, Master Sergeant Josh White. Welcome. Let's get it. What's going on, y'all? <laughs> Second enlisted, and that's crazy because I think Master Sergeant Walsh was the first. Uh-huh. Yep, he was. He actually just left this place. He just left. That's right. Do you know what his original AFSC is that he's back in now? Uh, well, when we during my episode, obviously it's not going to be something that cadets at the Air Force Academy get into, but we covered it just so right. know, we'd have some sort of context on him. But he mm-hmm. was also aerospace ground equipment, so it's kind of funny that That's that what overlaps. I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Did <laughs> so he I'm tell assuming you-, you guys probably knew each other, right? Well, I retrained, so I left the career field, and he's barely been in it as well. So we never actually crossed paths. We have a lot of mutual friends through the career field, but I've never crossed paths with him. I just, I was very drawn by like the smoke photos of him, like billowing <laughs> out of smoke, looking like a dynamic TI. Uh, <laughs> I just thought that was really cool. And uh, so I added him, and I've been friends with him ever since, simply from those photos. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. Um, had a lot of impact here at the academy. Uh, as someone who's a part of a job at the academy that isn't really like enforcing standards, that's not a position that the population just loves. But right. he somehow found a way to get a really good amount of respect out of it, despite being really good at his job as well. So um, you know, hats off to him. Definitely, definitely. I'm yeah. glad that I'm glad, you know, he got a lot out of it for him as well. He seemed to really be upset about leaving that place. So hopefully he's doing all right being an age ranger again. <laughs> On the way to becoming a chief. So to get into your story, what what exactly led you to enlist? I usually start off like with academy stories, but right. it's not necessarily applicable. But there is some sort of why I'm assuming for you as well. Yes, yeah, so I'm fourth generation Air Force. So my great-great-grandfather from Army Air Corps, um, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, me, and then on my mom's side, like third generation. So basically, I was brought up with the Air Force. Like that was always my reality since I was a kid. My dad switched to the guard uh, at Andrews Air Force Base. He was a commander of like FSS there. And they have a huge guard building on Andrews. Um, And I used to run those halls like all the time. I love going to his work. Um, I love seeing everyone like in their uniforms, asking questions, like just going cubicle to cubicle, like talking to everybody. And so um, Mm -hmm. I think the seed was planted then that, you know, I would carry on, um, you know, that that legacy and and bring it forth in my own life. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that was my biggest driving factor for sure. Yeah. I think that's a 
pretty big thing when there's there's a family. So I wouldn't call it pressure, but it's like, hey, my my grandfather did it, my great grandfather did it, my dad did it. Like, I want right. to continue this kind of fa- familial tradition, and it seems like you're doing a pretty good job at it. You know, I mentioned the 2022 number one veteran podcast of the year. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you're not involved in PA to my knowledge, like officially. Not officially. I've talked to PA officers and they say a big part of their job is to help tell the Air Force story. And the Air Force is made up of people. And that's exactly what your show does is it tells the story of the Air Force's airmen. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I talked to all sorts of different people. I just happen to know more airmen um, mm. just being in 19 yeah. years. Um, I'm really, I really talk to anyone who just has an incredible story. Um, so I'm guessing my guest pool will probably change, you know, even as I retire and, and meet different groups of people and, and et cetera. But one thing I've learned about veterans in general is that they all have something extreme that they've dealt with in their life that anyone in, you know, on the civilian side even can, it would resonate with them. Right. So, let's say someone, you know, had PTSD from a car wreck or a traumatic experience. Well, listening to a podcast with a veteran who had PTSD, they could learn something from that or Mm -hmm. depression or anxiety or addiction. Even how they got through that um, is what I try to capture because I feel like people are seeking that out out there. So not only does it honor that member and, and give them a spotlight um, and to, and I show them in a light that they want to be seen, right? I I kind Mm -hmm. of get a feel for, how they want to be seen and viewed. Um, and so I capture that to honor them. That's how I show gratitude. And then on the flip side, it just has a tremendous impact with what the topic is and what people are, are looking for. You know, the people that feel alone or isolated or no one's gone through this, no one knows how I feel. I hope that, you know, they can come across an episode that I've done where they're like, wow, you know, this actually really helped me. And I get a lot of messages about that. So that's uh, it's been a really amazing experience i've been doing it for three years now mm-hmm. yeah it's a great product i mean even when i, I recently spoke to sam Eckholm, and he, that conversation put my it framed my mind in a way that there's so many intangible factors that go into this institution of the air force like you're talking about making sure that people are mentally healthy so that they can do their job effectively that's something that I mean, I think the Air Force as a whole is starting to gauge and get metrics on, but it's not the easiest thing to do. And so that's just one example of providing value to the Air Force, not through the traditional channel of, okay, this is your AFSC, you refuel planes, you make sure, I don't know, they're good to take off, that sort of thing. There's so many different ways, like Sam Echo, he was saying, I could do more for the national security of the United States by recruiting really strong applicants through my products and videos. So that's like second and third order effects way Mm -hmm. down the line, just because he's doing something civilian rather than in his PA career. So like, again, hats off to you for taking this initiative and doing something that you're, you're filling a void that the air force doesn't seem to fill on its own. Absolutely. I think they'll get there one day. I don't think they're there yet. And as you know, this is a slow moving process, right? But real quick on Sam, that's my number one downloaded episode. So you're probably going to see some success from that because he's a, a really talented guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he ha- he holds the title of my number one most downloaded episode, although some folks are creeping up on him. Um, <laughs> uh, Je- Lieutenant General Slife is right on his tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
I transitioned into videos too. I started doing video podcasts and and clips and then interviewing people in person and then putting I, I, I started watching him as kind of a template on how to enter the video space. And so a lot of my style and my approach stems from what I've seen him do. Um, and I, so I want to give him a shout out for helping pave that path. I think letting him separate from the air force is a huge mistake. I would have paid that guy anything to keep him in because I would argue that he recruits more members than all of our recruiters combined. Mm -hmm. And so like, but we're not quite there yet to understand an impact that Sam brings. Right. Yeah. I get it. So when I saw him separate, I was just like, it's not the end of the road though. He's still, a yeah, he's still, to, but he is, he's just he, not within the bounds of it. Right. So maybe, maybe it unleashed him to do even more. Heck, I don't know. But, <laughs> but initially I was like, dang, I hope, I wonder if they realize like how insanely valuable this guy is with like how he portrays the military's mission to the public in such a special way. That's like, I've never even seen it done that good before, you know? So mm-hmm. just want to give him a shout out for, encouraging me to to take it farther you know yeah so to get into the 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 meat and potatoes of this episode what what jobs and roles have you held during your time in the air force beyond what i mentioned in your intro yeah so the first one was aerospace ground equipment did that for six years i retrained into public health um i consider COVID ops a separate part of public health that I had to learn because it was Mm -hmm. complete chaos. Um, it was, it was on the shoulders of public health. Um, and we had to change a lot to meet that demand. Right. So I kind of count COVID ops as its own learning experience. Um, I did military funeral honors for two years, um, covering every air force veteran funeral for the state of Missouri. We had unfortunately seven active duty deaths, um, and so their, their place of burial was Missouri. So we did an active duty funeral, which instead of like six people, it's like over 20, just to put it in perspective, like how, you know, serious those are. Um, and I've been a commander's exec. I was a med group commander's exec at Whiteman at one point as well. The only enlisted uh, c- group level commander exec on the base, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. Um, and... I was the first shirt for a while. I did a lot of first shirt fill-ins, you know, when when just to get that experience to see if it was something that I want to pursue one day. So I filled in a lot for that role as well. So I think that okay. pretty much covers everything I've done in the military, at, at least career-wise. Do you think we could pull on that that thread of uh, first shirt? Because the the main audience that's listening here is probably cadets and academy grads, maybe some uh, people that are looking to get into the academy. Mm-hmm. But the first shirt role in a cadet squadron, I don't think necessarily correlates to the same thing in the operational Air Force. So if you could break that down, maybe definitionally what a first shirt does and then tie it to some examples of what you did. Definitely. Um, so first sergeant is uh, a senior NCO role. It's one of the most unique roles in the Air Force. And like you said, it means different things in different services even. So it is worth pointing out like what the Air Force defines a first shirt as or a diamond. So mm-hmm. they'll have a diamond inside of, of their insignia. And that's how you identify, okay, that's the first sergeant. That's the shirt. They go by shirt. Um, anyone who fills in is called the undershirt, which I thought was kind of a funny name, you know, for whoever made that up. <laughs> Couldn't put that on my EPR though, unfortunately. Um <laughs> 
But uh, and so essentially they are supposed to be really spun up on Air Force policy, Air Force standards, like a, a good source of information. They're also kind of a therapist and a counselor for people to come in there and have one-on-ones. And here's what I thought was really fascinating about shirts, and I'd never picked up on this for years, but they are never a shirt within their unit of their career field. I never knew that. So like if you were a maintenance guy, you're never going to be a shirt in maintenance. That's Why? off limits. They want someone with a totally different perspective. They want someone okay. who's not biased from being brought up in that culture. Mm-hmm. They feel like a different perspective um, enhances the that unit. I think that I agree with that because they're going to see things differently, right? And if something's wrong, they they potentially could catch that cultural shift, you know, that maybe something didn't go uh, as well as it could have. So I always thought that was a, a really good idea. And again, something I never even noticed until I've been in for like 10 years. And I was like, wait, what? Now that you say that, actually, uh, sorry to cut you off, but we have this role and it's kind of squadron based called peer. And it it's kind of like if you need to talk to somebody, um, they're the person to go to. And we have probably semesterly briefs with them. And like you said, they're never from our squadron. They're never representing our squadron for us. It's always somebody else's squadron has a peer that comes and talks to yeah. us. So it might be that same perspective type thing. Definitely. I think it, I, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I love that someone thought of that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it also, they are, so they're kind of put in a unique spot where half of their roles are supporting that commander, that group commander or squadron commander or group commander. And the other half of the roles is being there for the airmen, letting them know of information standards. So it's it's kind of a split role in a way, right? You're you're literally spending half your time working on projects with your commanders, doing commanders calls. Um, they they're in charge of the family care plan, so mill to mill couples and what they would do with their children if they were to both deploy. Like they, mm. they have oversight of that. Um, and then they spend a, tr- a tremendous amount of time just um, talking with airmen, advising airmen on what to do career-wise, um, or just having like really hard talks that maybe they just needed uh, someone that's you know unbiased that they just want to spend one-on-one time with to get their feedback. So very unique role. A lot of people that love that role never want to leave it. Like, and I think if you keep promoting within it, you can continue to be one. So, like, if you promote while you are a first sergeant, I believe that extends your time as one. I think that's the only way to, like, really extend that time without going back to your career field. Mm. But that's really hard to do. Those are, like, the sharpest senior NCOs. So, you would have to win, like, an annual award or something as a first shirt to promote. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, so, most people end up not promoting, going back to their career and then on that next cycle for promotion, their their breadth of experience just absolutely destroys any competition. And they typically promote upon return to their career field since nothing really stacks up against the things that they've been doing while they were a diamond wearing shirt. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I remember we had a brief when I was on Ops Air Force. It's like a program where you go check out uh, like an operational Air Force base. I had the the privilege to go to Hickam and their OSS squadron. We had a brief with their top four, their squadron commander, DO, um, their shirt and their senior enlisted leader. 
And it almost seemed as though whenever the shirt would chime in, he was always the personnel oriented uh, voice. He was representing, uh, I guess it's kind of the, the job as well of um, the SEL to be like, okay, this is the sentiment of the enlisted people in your squadron. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I'm reading this correctly, the shirt is more of the emotional aspect of the enlisted sentiment. Is that right? I would say they're probably more available for that. Okay. Uh, usually the SEL is is going to be in a lot of meetings, is going to have a lot of taskers. So I think while they both have a similar type of approach, I, I would argue to say the first shirt probably has more time to dedicate for that. Okay. The, gotcha. the SEL is probably more tailored to other senior NCOs that want advice. They would go to the SEL. Okay. But I will tell you, here's what you might not expect me to say. I did the the shirt one time for three months straight. That's a long time. You know, I was a tech sergeant, so this is out of my pay grade. After that three months, I decided I don't want to be one. So that's that's what kind of surprises people is that I chose to not be one based on my experience. Now, did I have a really crazy experience that like shook me to my core? Yes. But that's the reality of that position. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, and I say that for anyone who goes to that first sergeant symposium, and a lot of you officers will get to go, especially new officers that are entering the Air Force, you will go to this course. And that's basically like how to be a first sergeant, an undershirt, like what that looks like. And I got to say, when everything's going great, it's a great, it's a, it's a really fun spot. You know, I get to learn from the commanders. I'm on their team. I feel important. I'm going to meetings. My voice matters. I'm, it, it was cool, you know, making all these friends and networking and everything was going great. But you can be put in some serious situations that I personally felt like I wasn't even qualified to handle and had to ask for help, which is fine. Shirts do lean on each other. They do ask for help um, because it mm. can get pretty wild. Um, just a few examples, uh, a spousal abuse situation where the civilian husband had a firearm that that we needed to retrieve from the house because there was threats made on the active duty member. We go to retrieve the weapon and he's there with the weapon. <laughs> holy yes now mind you i'm a i'm a tech sergeant i'm not the real shirt did not expect him to be there with the firearm angry and come to come to find out i live like two streets down from them and didn't even realize it so i'm in my own neighborhood and my wife's gonna give birth in like a month and i'm thinking i'm about to lose my life and not even see my child right like i it was that serious of a situation um luckily I de-escalated it. it. That seemed to have worked and no one got hurt. So, but that's just an example of like, it can go south real quick. You could have the best day ever one day and be put in a situation like that, like the very next day. So I would say when you get to that training, really pay attention and ask questions. Because again, it's all fun and games until you're really called upon to be there for someone in their darkest moment. And you want to feel as prepared as you can when that situation, you know, lands on your lap. Wow. That, that kind of gave me chills. I can't, like, I kind of put myself in your shoes for a second. Um, but again, while I was on ops at Hickam, we visited the security forces squadron. And they had this simulation thing, uh, like a whole, full VR headset. And 
the whole the whole rest of the group could see on a screen what you were seeing, but oh, you wow. were seeing it through the VR. Right. And you had a gun. Like you literally had a gun because um a bunch of the scenarios they were going to put you through involved you to potentially shoot. And you know, the graphics aren't great and right. the the voices are scripted, but it makes you feel like you're in that situation. Mm. And we saw like time after time people like they're like oh that's not that bad. Then they go up and they're like you're saying there's this domestic abuse situation where somebody has to handle it and you know right it's real it's real it's real yeah another few quick ones is like someone who attempted their life you know wanted to take their life and they get put in luckily they they are they are alive they go to get treatment and i was going there to pick that member up and i i feel like i'm pretty good supervisor i'm pretty spun up on like you know being there for someone but like picking up someone who tried to end their life it i was really struggling to find the words on that car ride back to base Mm. and i really wished in that moment i had specifically asked how should i handle that what should i say should i say nothing i you don't want to fail someone when they need help right like that's the Mm. worst feeling ever is like am i failing this person because i don't know something you know i don't know the best way to like every word you say could like affect the outcome of someone's life you could be in a situation like that and to not know what to say, you know, that, that made me really uncomfortable. Um, and, and so after that, there, there's even more that I won't get into, but th- there was more situations. It was a hell of a three months. I learned a ton, but personally with the, with, with what brings me joy and the things I like to do, I felt that that wasn't for me. That that's just, and that's what the experience is for to mm-hmm. when you fill in. It's to know if you want to pursue that or not. It gives you a because t- it's a huge commitment. They don't want someone to join that doesn't know anything about it. That thinks, oh, that'll just make my record look good, mm-hmm. and they're not equipped at all for it. So, it to me, the the program did what it was supposed to do. It showed someone like me the reality of it, and I didn't think that was something I wanted to do long term. So, yeah, interesting stuff, right? Oh yeah. Uh, kind of trailing off that because you're mentioning going to that training and officers were present for a position that they're not even going to be, um, available to get. Mm -hmm. What were some of the enlisted officer dynamics in some of the jobs that you've held, whether it's the ratio of enlisted to officers or, you know, maybe you just had bad experience, great experience, like dive into what, what these sort of relationships have been looking like. Absolutely. Um, so I will say from what I've heard and the reason the officers are in that course, I'll just speak on that a little. There's not a lot of opportunities for officers to learn a lot of the ins and outs of like the websites we use, the admin processes. There's not a lot of like stuff to support you right out the gate. There might be some stuff later down the line when you're a bit more established, but a lot of officers struggle with like getting to the base and they're like, Oh, you know, go up there and pull up your surf and find your OPR. And, and, and they're not really sure like where to find that. Cause no one actually sat down and showed them. And now they feel silly for asking, right. Mm-hmm. They get put in situations like that, like right out the, right out the gate at their first base. Um, and so a lot of like captains and, and some newer majors like set up courses at certain bases to like help fill in those gaps. They did at Whiteman at least. Um, so definitely any any officer getting to that first base, I would get with the shirt or the SEL 
and really like take a ton of notes and just get in the weeds and, and ask every question you could possibly think of, at least have it saved in your notes that you can go back and look at. Cause you're not going to remember everything you hear. You know what I mean? Mm. So just don't be afraid to ask questions. Admit you don't know a lot of the stuff you want to learn and ask a lot of questions. So I would, that's just my advice for any new officer that I think would set them up for success. Sure. Um, because that's a hard position to hold, right? Like you're automatically in charge of 99% of the people around you from day one. And, you know, you don't want to feel silly. You don't want to feel incompetent. You know, you're, you're expected to know things, but if no one showed you, then what are you supposed to do with that? You know, so rip the bandaid off, you know, get, get that, that awkward learning part out the way as quick as you can by just accepting that it, it, it is going to be hard and it is going to be awkward, but guess what? You're going to PCS. They're going to PCS. So whatever, whatever mistakes or missteps or silly questions, I would do that sooner than later. That way you can just move on with the rest of your career and, and know a lot of that information rather than three, four years down the line, you have to ask, you know, where to find your surf or something. Yeah. Um, so some of the officers I work for, um, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll start with one really common one I've seen, and that's enlisted to officer, right? Um, I will say that in my experience, that's either been really, really good for the unit or really, really bad. And I think that it always triggered me as like how they were treated when they were enlisted. Um, <laughs> some of them were treated really poorly, and when they were in that position of power, they felt that everyone else deserved that treatment as well. That's mm -hmm. the vibe. That's the impression I got. But I've met some pretty, really difficult individuals who really made people's lives tough, I think, because of the abuse that they incurred earlier on. And you'll see a lot of that. And you might be in that situation where you went, you go through a time with a really toxic leader, and that's going to be up to you what you do with that, right? Are you going to learn from that and learn what not to do? Or are you going to power trip one day and kind of become that person? Mm. That's something I see all the time. I see it happen all the time. This will be something everyone is faced with in their career. How do you use that experience, right? Um, and then some of the best officers you'll meet were the enlisted officer just because they're, they're just grateful and thankful for, you know, the work that they put in to get to where they're at. They're very, they're very humble. I think anyone in the military, we appreciate someone who's humble, anyone who's power tripping or, or using their rank to like threaten people or, or, or intimidate people. You know, I've noticed that that does not go very well. That might've worked like a long time ago, but in mm. today's time that being humble uh, and treating people with kindness and respect, you got to hold them to the standards, right? But you have to have that foundation of trust first or or they're not really listening to you. They're listening to your rank. You want them to listen to you. They, you want them to see you as a person, as a leader, and want to follow you, not necessarily what your rank is, right? Mm. Uh, and the only way to do that is to get to know them and build that foundation of trust. Um, and once you start with that, now they're, now they're going to be open to your feedback, even if you are a younger officer that's new. They're going to be a bit more open to it because they know you have their best interests at heart. Um, some of the, another officer type that I met when I, when I was in maintenance. So I've seen a lot of like uncomfortable ones get put in charge of a unit that they know nothing about. 
when I was in maintenance, I saw that a lot because a lot of those officers don't even have a maintenance background, right? They're just like, Hey, you're the, you're the maintenance officer, you know, run the ops do. And, and they're like, I don't even know what these airmen are doing. Like, what is this? And I met one that was, uh, enlisted to officer. I think he was an admin guy. Uh, this is at my first base in Guam and the guy just had no idea what was going on. Um, you know, he just was, he didn't want to admit that he didn't know what we did. He had too much pride, you know, with being maybe prior enlisted, you know, he was a higher rank as an enlisted member, but being this new Lieutenant in this new role, he wasn't really there for us because he just wouldn't allow himself to learn anything. He kind of just wanted to immediately be looked at as this authority figure without actually learning what our team was doing and asking questions, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to say, a lot, of the, a lot of the best commanders I've ever met, a lot of the, the best bosses I ever had um, were officers, uh, just because they, by the time they hit like that squadron com- commander level, they just have so much knowledge. Um, and I would say, don't be intimidated by them, right? Like I, I came up in a time where like, we don't, we didn't talk to our leaders. Like I wouldn't talk to the chief. I just keep my head down or, or the major or Colonel. Like I'd be like, Oh snap, you know, let's get away from that. Mm. That's kind of how the culture was then. Now it's a lot more like inclusive and a lot more conversations are happening. I would say, look at those officers as a source of uh, education and inspiration because just the amount of stories and knowledge that especially the squadron commander, group commanders, they have a tremendous amount of experience that you could learn from. And all you need to do sometimes is simply just ask them. Even as an enlisted person, I learned that as an exec. I got to be their friend there and have them as mentors. And I mean, they're just incredible. I worked for um, Colonel Crystal Henderson. She's still in. She's a doctor. I I worked for her um, as an exec. She was a med group commander. And I learned more from her in that year than I probably did the whole career before me combined because I got to get to take time and get to know this really special leader who really cared about people. I got to see how to do things right from behind and how thorough she was, right? How thorough she reviewed things, how she thought through problems, how she dealt with conflict. There's no better training I ever could have had than working alongside her with her scope and her level of responsibility was just absolutely invaluable for me. So, you know, if you find an officer like that or a commander like that, please use them as a resource, you know, mm-hmm. get to know them, ask them for help. People like being asked for help. Literally we're wired that way. We enjoy that. So to, to look at them as like, that's my boss. I'm not going to even be on his radar. Don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my brother's actually enlisted. Um, he's an F-16 crew chief in uh, Kunsan right now. And I think it's it's an interesting dynamic because I am basically not even in the Air Force yet, but somehow I have the opportunity to be almost surrounded by colonels and generals just because there's it's so there's so the population of colonels and generals are so dense here at the academy. Whereas where he is, he's just in, uh, surrounded by enlisted people. So there is kind of like the density of the population 
um, and their rank plays into it. But I, I think another thing um, is the communication that I think the Air Force and probably the Space Force as well are more like forward thinking and progressive in the way that we need to communicate in order to solve complex problems. And if we're going to maintain this bureaucracy and red tape that prevents us from communicating effectively, we're ultimately putting ourselves at a disadvantage. So I'm glad that we're shifting away from that time of military where tradition is really enforced, even though it gets in the way, like we're, we're actually focused on mission completion and effective mission completion rather than, you know, upholding this arbitrary tradition. I mean, it makes sense when you look at like the downsizing, right? Um, so like after like the Gulf war, when we were like real fat and heavy, we had mm. a ton of people like that's my dad's time, right? Man, they were loving life. You know, they just came off this victory in the Middle East. They got a huge budget, tons of personnel. I remember my dad just barbecuing, playing ba uh, baseball on Andrews Air Force Base, you know, wearing aviators, just looking all 80s out, um, <laughs> just loving life, right? Because it, how could you not? There's so many people, so many friends, and a lot of the policy was shaped around that because we could, right? We were in a position mm -hmm. to do that. Um, so we could have all the bells and whistles and all the red tape and all. We had time to sort those things out. And then you look at today when, you know, we have half the people and in, in twice amount of problems on the horizon, you have to treat that small group much differently than you treated this massive group. The people mm -hmm. that you have left, you absolutely should know who those people are. You should trust each other. Like we took a lot of that stuff for granted because we could, but this new era we're entering we absolutely need to change a few things if we're if we want to be the best team possible and not hold ourselves back from our potential. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about my good friend I grew up playing hockey with. His name's Jake Tebow. During my freshman year parents weekend, I was notified that Jake got into a severe hockey accident where he was paralyzed from the waist down with little hopes of walking again. Through the help of many generous people and a no-quit attitude, he's been able to make great progress, but he still needs your help. If you want to check out his story and donate, his website is tebow14tough.com. That's T-B-O, the number 14tough.com. Or check out his Instagram, jake.tebow, to support his progress. Thanks. This means an absolute ton. Now back to the episode. And another thing I want to touch on when you were talking about like prior E officers, um, it's not exactly the same. I don't want to attribute this to prior enlisted cadets here at the academy, but more so just cadets in general, because we all went through dually year. I don't know if you're familiar with that whole process. I'm you, not. So as a freshman here, your life sucks. You oh. have to like run everywhere, hold oh, your backpack. I've heard about your, that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of rules that apply hmm. only to the freshmen. I think there's – I just actually came from a brief where there's policies being implemented, spoken about by General Marks, um, the commandant here, to kind of go away from that so that, you know, we can focus on bigger things rather than just, like, making freshmen's lives hell. But beyond, you know, what's coming in the future, in the past, freshman year is – kind of like basic training mm -hmm. on steroids, including like you're going to college. 
And yeah, I can't even imagine that. That's just <laughs> wild. It's not fun, but <laughs> so you, and then you ultimately get to the other side of it. You become an upperclassman, a sophomore, junior, senior, and you see some people that like hold on to it. Like you were saying, I got treated badly, so I'm mm. going to treat the freshman badly. Um, or the other way around, like they more probably critically thinking people, they're like, I really didn't enjoy this. I didn't think it served that much of a purpose. Trying to like discount biases, like their own personal biases. And they probably treat their freshmen more intentionally than they were treated. So I think it's like you said, both sides of it. You can have people that are just like kind of upset that they got treated really badly, even though it's probably the same as everybody else. And Mm -hmm. they do that. They inflict the same quote unquote pain on their freshmen, or you have the people who put a little more thought into it. Yeah. They're, they're a bit more empathetic. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe have a little more emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I I guess it's just a human nature kind of thing now that you pointed out, even in, in your situation, um, and I'm, I'm glad we spoke about it because I want it to be on people's minds as they navigate their career, um, just mm-hmm. so they're aware that that dynamic will play out at some point. Mm-hmm. Being aware of your biases is, is an extremely valuable thing. Um, so kind of on that topic of leadership, um, we talked about the goods and the bads, especially since there's a lot of intangibles like I was speaking about before, like mental health is a big one that we're starting to take more measurements on and pay more attention to, but that hasn't always been the case. And so if you could, could you share some times that you either were or weren't supported regarding mental health by leadership? I'd love to hear like both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. So I I call my first 10 years, like, my first 10 years in, it's a long time, pretty miserable experience. Um, some of it was, you know, trauma I incurred as a kid, seeing my parents go through divorce, seeing, you know, them basically ignoring us because they had so many of their own problems to deal with. And, you know, some, a lot of it comes with that. And I think, that, I mean, who, who doesn't come in to an organization and have some, some baggage, right? You're human. Mm-hmm. You're going to have some sort of baggage with you. And, and I love when people say like basic training six weeks isn't going to like change your whole approach in life and views, right? Six weeks is not going to change all of the history that you had before you joined. Um, so I think it's important to, to just kind of keep that in mind. Like when someone joins, that's not like the day they're born, right? Like <laughs> they have all this other experiences that you, you should learn about and get to know them as a person so that you can catch these things. Um, for me personally, I was kind of came up in the time where, you know, if you said something, if you got help, you could lose your career. It, it was a it was a bit more rocky uh, to ask for help. You know, asking for help then kind of felt like quitting. You know, the military. It was like I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like oh, I need help and I want to communicate that. It was just like I'm done. So that was hard, man. Um, because I, I picked up a really bad drinking problem at my first base. The drinking age was 18 in Guam, and I was 19 when I got there. It's um, it since changed to 21. And I went there with all my friends from tech school and had the time of my life. That I don't really count that as my first base difficult experience because it never was difficult at that base in Guam. It was, it was a great time. The whole year and a half I was there, it was a short tour. 
the real test didn't come till I got to Kadena Air Base when I knew no one and the mission was 12 hour shifts and mission first. And it was just absolutely brutal. Um, I ended up being on 12s night shift for cumulatively about a year. Oh my God. And I, I just isolated and, and disconnected. I, I couldn't tell you who my boss was, the commander was, um, the, the wing commander was, I, I was so disconnected. I knew nothing of the base mission or anything. It was just me on the flight line, picking up equipment, dropping equipment off. Um, and that quiet time just really stung, you know, like when it wasn't busy and I had time to think, I just remember thinking like, what, what am I doing with myself? Like what, why am I out here all night long? Like it just started just the isolation and the twelves, it just built up. Um, and so there I picked up a really nasty drinking habit in a bad way, you know, before I was partying and it was all positive, but the habit was there. And when I got to Japan, it kind of all became very negative. And when I got to Missouri, I was at an all time low and, uh, ended up getting myocarditis where my heart swelled up and I, and I almost lost my life, um, with a combination of getting the flu mist with which is a live virus, a flu shot essentially, mm-hmm. and my poor health habits you know, that put me in the hospital and I almost lost my life. Um, you know, looking back on that really difficult time in my life, the isolation and all that, I try to reach with every episode I do, I have airman white me on that flight line in mind with every talk I have, because I know there's people out there that are still feeling that way, right? You don't see them. You're on day shift. You never see these people. Uh, and so every episode I do, you know, there wasn't podcasts back then for that I knew of. Um, I, I want an airman out there who's feeling that way to at least be able to find something that I've discussed that helps them get through that situation versus having nothing and, mm-hmm. and being afraid to, to talk to anyone. Now, from an officer perspective, I would keep that airman on your mind, right? Who are you not seeing? Who's on night shift? Who's been on 12s a little bit too long? Do you even know who's on those shifts? Have you even ever met them? Those are things that I would ask. So my, my same philosophy of those blind spots with my podcast and what I'm trying to provide to them, um, I, would, I would have that same philosophy as an officer about your people and your teams and where they're actually at shift-wise and geographically to make sure that you're there for your whole team and not just the seven to four squad that you see every day. Um, and, and the last part on the mental health that I'll say with my own journey was that it wasn't anything negative that changed my life. I waited for a rock bottom, right? I kind of found it with the heart virus. I was like, great. Mm. I hit rock bottom. I can change my life now that that didn't happen. I continued to have those bad habits. I continued to be depressed I was looking at it the the wrong way. I, you should not search for a rock bottom to change your life. Okay. That's mm-hmm. not how it works. What changed my life was positivity, people believing in me. And it was little baby steps that just added up over time that really turned my life around. It was, it was getting out the house, you know, meeting new friends, having new experiences. And based on those new experiences, I met my now wife, started dating her. Um, started going to school, started picking up these good habits and replacing those bad habits with these good habits. Now I'm exercising. Now I'm going to school. This didn't happen overnight. It happened over the span of a year. 
you can do a lot of positive things for yourself in only one year. You could turn your whole life around because I've done it. I've seen it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, after I got to, I haven't drank now for four years. Now, there's a certain point where it wasn't a problem for me, but it was still a negative relationship I had with it, right? I was always drawn to it in difficult social situations or difficult times. I was still drawn to it kind of as a crutch, right? And uh, I just didn't have the courage to to let that go until, I'll try to tie this in with an officer perspective. So I had an officer boss who was probably one of the best supervisors I've ever had in my whole career. Um, and his name is Major Nicholas Cunningham. Uh, he's currently an FSS squadron commander. I knew him when he was a captain working for a squadron commander. So it's really cool to see he went to the Pentagon, got all this training, and now he's actually a squadron commander. Um, and that guy is amazing. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, one reason he was always sharing his story. I never met an officer who took the time to come to our team to simply explain their story, their why, their purpose, like in a really like intimate not like an official, like, hi, this is your commander's call, which that's great, but it was more like personable, right? It was, uh, it was a very close knit conversations that he would have with teams where he would kind of, you know, be transparent with, with who, what, who he is, what his values are, the, the tough times he went through, how he lost his parents while he was at the academy. And, he thought he failed his final PT test and his parents died and he just collapsed to the ground and just felt like, you know, his world was closing in on him. And, and for someone who we assumed was perfect and did everything right in their whole life and never struggled, that wasn't the case. And that really humanized him, uh, in, in all of our eyes. But not only that, um, you know, he was there for me even when I couldn't be. So, what really changed my life as an enlisted member was when I became a 12 outstanding airman of the year for air force global strike. I never won awards before that. And then when I finally do win, it goes all the way to the top, which was an mm -hmm. amazing life changing experience. I never even thought I deserved that. I never even assumed I would, would reach that. I was worthy of that, but I had someone like him who believed in me. And while I was away at honor guard training at bowling air force base, he put me in for packages that eventually won at every single level that's put me on the map for Global Strike Command where I'm going on TDYs, I'm going to award ceremonies. My dad won that same award when I was a child. And I heard about how this, and he became an officer. And it all started when he won the 12 Outstanding Airman of the Year. He was a tech sergeant when he won. He had a two-year-old at home. I was a tech sergeant when I won. I had a two-year-old at home. So to hear this story, which made my dad feel like a hero in my eyes, he was so proud of that moment. Um, and then to repeat it myself with my dad as my guest was like a surreal, life-changing event that simply would not have happened had Major Cunningham not taken the time to put me in. You know, we're used to writing our own awards. Oh, put yourself in write something and I'll look at it and I'll submit it. No, he wrote the thing from scratch. He did that on my behalf. And that set in a chain reaction 
that changed my whole life. I probably wouldn't even have this podcast that I'm on talking to you now if it wasn't for the confidence and the love I felt from that experience. So it can be profound. It's a domino effect that is absolutely profound that officers have a direct impact on. Uh, my friend Sully calls it the two-inch decision. A two-inch domino knocks down something twice its size, knocks down something four times its size. In no time at all, it can knock down like skyscrapers. Just from mm. a two-inch domino, it starts with that. Never discount like the little interactions with people. Never discount um, submitting someone for an award. It, sound, it, it might mean nothing to you. It might be like, okay, I'm putting it. That one award could set a chain reaction off to turn that whole person's life around. It really mm. could. You need to see it that way. Or, uh, or supporting an airman on retraining because he wants to go to OTS or he wants a new career. He or she wants a new career field. Take the time to get them there. You know, mm. usually that stuff takes an officer to give them that clearance. It usually almost always does. Don't sit on that stuff. Talk to them about it. See what they want to do. Help them get through that. Those little micro decisions that seem very small at the time will change their entire life. I told mm. you I retrained. My shop was adamant that I wouldn't retrain. They were super toxic and they kept throwing the paperwork away. This is when we were physically routing it. They kept throwing the paperwork away. I kept missing the windows. I'm like, what is going on? I finally said, the hell with this. I'm going to talk to this major. He was prior enlisted. And this guy was like, this is bullshit. Like, you're going to retrain. And like, gave me that time, heard me out, and I retrained. Now, I was about to separate. Look what that one decision did that that major did when he gave me that time. Now I've been in 19 years, right? He now enabled I have this, a huge asset. Right. Like, his one decision to just sign a piece of paper for me and give me that time got another 10 years out of me and how many lives have I impacted in that 10 years, right? Mm. Now I have the podcast. I did military funeral honors where I interacted with the public, the entire base. He made all of that possible by simply giving me the time and signing a piece of paper. Mm. Well, first off, I really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing you know, probably your darkest moments of your life. But I think it's a strong testament that your story, like it has such an upward trajectory. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other people that are going through similar struggles where they're like, I feel like I can't get out of this rut. Right. Exactly. It, you know, I might just take that one, that one officer, whoever it might be to give you this validation that nobody else has given you. And, there's fourth, fifth, and sixth order effects of it, like you're saying before. So I, I appreciate you sharing that story with us. Absolutely. You guys will be put in positions that impact people's entire lives. Mm -hmm. And and the more care and attention you put into that, the better results that you'll see on the other end. So mm -hmm. it, it's just those investments that you're called upon to do. Um, and it's definitely changed my life. So you know, for any officer listening, you know, take those things seriously because it it has a tremendous impact with the ripple effect. Mm -hmm. On that kind of note of telling people stories and how you start up that podcast, I'll let you take the reins a little bit. But to round out the episode, what inspired you to start it and what has been the groove of it, like mission wise and what it's transformed into? Yeah, man. So, um I used to love talking to people and hearing their stories when I was age. Those 12-hour shifts, 
sometimes you'd be in there with another buddy and, and all you can do is talk to that person. And I started to really appreciate all these different stories from all these different people from different walks of life. And I remember trying to like hear where they would fail and try to actually apply that to my own life. So I've always been a fan of storytelling and using someone else's experience to help better everyone else's life, right? If my story makes your life easier and I give you a shortcut to success, why not do that? Why not provide hmm. that to you, right? So I think it started with that all those years ago. But when I decided to actually do it was after my time in Honor Guard. You know, um, the the program was in shambles when I got there. The base couldn't stand the program. It was about to shut down and get sent to the guard. Like it was in all sorts of hot water. The airmen were coming back worse than when they arrived, which is not what we're trying to do here. And so I walked into a pretty tough situation. Um, and I realized real quickly I had I had two kind of battlefronts. I had our actual skill level and I had the perception of our skill level. Two different battles, right? Mm -hmm. This is where like the public affairs side of me kind of blossomed. Because I was like, if people think we suck, I can't get the good airmen. If I don't get the good airmen, I'll never change their mind that we don't suck. Like it was just this cycle that I was stuck in. And so I created a Facebook page and I started instead of letting the supervisors guess what their airmen were doing, I wanted to show them. I'd live stream training events. I'd take pictures of them. I'd interview them. I would really highlight them. And what I noticed was that they got a lot of joy and pride out of those, out of those highlight reels. The base started sharing it. Global Strike started sharing them. People's parents were sharing it. They'd never seen their son or daughter in, 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 in uniform like that, in blues and ceremonials. Now mm. they're sharing it. Oh, this is my this is my daughter. Look what she's doing. She, I'm so proud. And like I just saw all this love generated from essentially nothing. We created it, right? It's not like an award I give you, and one person's happy they won that. It was like we're just there's just this limitless love and positivity that we can just create from nothing. And I thought that concept mm. was really fascinating to me. Um, Quick tangent after, on that. Yeah. I, this just clicked in my head. You know, it's just utilizing media because I think when people think media in the military, their mind instantly goes to like Vietnam and negative. Mm. But what you have is an extreme example of the exact opposite. It's like we're going to use media to to right. show our nation what good we're doing. You know what I mean? Right. Sorry, Man, that I just it's clicked it's, in my it's head. a simple concept, but you're right. The the way it's viewed makes it really difficult for people to buy into it. Yeah. Ab no, you're, you're absolutely spot on, but it's really not that difficult. It's, it's an mm -hmm. easy concept, right? That we need to get good at because guess what? That's what the adversaries are getting good at, right? Mm -hmm. This is a different language and different battlefield that we need to be familiar with. Uh, and I'm very proud that I have a hand in kind of leading that charge. Even if it, even if I don't get to do it for the air force, which I tried, I did try. Uh, even if I can't get to the Pentagon to do it, at least I know I, I set a lot of things in motion. And there's a lot of people like you that are going to carry that torch after me. So um, after Honor Guard, I felt like I was so challenged and I had so much purpose um, being there for those families, highlighting the team. I felt like I was missing that when I got to my next assignment. And I, and I said, how can I keep that going? Because that Facebook thing doesn't work for every unit. It worked in mm -hmm. that unit, right? Because it's new airmen. It's a unique mission. But if I'm just like go to my public health office and like, oh, I want to interview you. Like, 
it just didn't feel like it was going to stick in my mind. I wanted something more long-term, right? Not when mm. I PCS, it's no longer mine. And so that's when I decided I'm doing this podcast. I saw a few other airmen doing it and kind of dabbling in it. And I was like, this is it. This is the answer. This is what I've been looking for. Uh, and so I started, I did, I researched it for months and months before I left Whiteman. I got to Eglin. I, I did all, had all the research already done. I got the, bought the equipment, got the setup, got the software, all that. Um, and initially there was a lot of pushback. I'm not going to lie. Like there's certain people who, you know, when you do something different, someone is going to have a problem with it. Like, and you got to ask yourself, is this going to bring positivity and, and, and make a positive change for those around me? If the answer is yes, sometimes it's worth taking those hits for mm. because you know it's the right thing to do, right? Now, if you're doing it for a selfish reason and, and it's really not in line with making the organization better, then yeah, you should probably really rethink like what you're trying to accomplish here. But in this situation, I did have some people put with pushback. You can't talk to that person. Did you ask PA for that? How are you doing this? Who did you, all these questions. Did I still think that I was doing the right thing because I wasn't breaking any rules? I wasn't breaking any laws and I was making everything better by talking to these leaders and these incredible airmen and capturing their stories forever. I, it was worth taking the hits out the gate. It really was. Uh, mm. And I got, and, and it was not easy. I'm not going to lie. It, it was not easy. It's never easy when you're trying to change something or do something different. Flash forward three years from now, and you know, I talked to the General Goldfein, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. Lucky you. Uh, I talked to him. <laughs> I talked to Lieutenant General Slife. And not to say that those talks were better than any of the other airmen's talks, but I think it's just a it's a testament to show how far it's come with being accepted and with key leaders understanding that sh them sharing their story, like with General Slife as an example. I've never been able to sit across from a general and just pick their brain. Never. That has never happened for me. That's a rare thing, right? Mm -hmm. But what's amazing about that conversation is that not only was I getting to know him, and this, he's the possible vice chief of staff of the Air Force. He's in line for that. Don't you want to know your boss's values, their stories, what makes them tick? Don't you want to know that about the person whose one decision affects hundreds of thousands of people? Right? Mm. You don't want to feel like that's a stranger to you. So not only was I able to sit down with him and really hear how amazing this guy is and how he was brought up and, and all these incredible stories, but everyone else gets to hear that too. Everyone else was kind of sitting in my chair with me, learning about this incredible leader with me. And so like the impact that that has and the trust that that builds is absolutely invaluable. And so the positivity and love and joy and, and change that I've seen in the three years since I've been doing this, it's probably the best decision I've ever made. Um, and I, I'm just going to keep going, man. I've, I've, I've seen so many good things come out of these conversations and it stems from just our time. There's really nothing else. It's just our time. It's just spending time with each other, but yet it creates a tremendous amount of positivity and we need that more than ever today when when it's all the news is well you know i'm not even gonna get into that <laughs> we're kind of creating our own news now mm -hmm. with with things that bring us joy things that we want to hear and things that we want to see and ultimately that's just going to bring us that much closer together so to be a part of that into and i'm proud of myself for hanging in there that first year 
Um, and then three years later, I'm sitting across from a general. It's just absolutely mind boggling, but it's a testament to the power of conversation. Mm-hmm. No, it's your, your project is extremely impressive and I think it's paying dividends not only to you, but to the air force in general. I've said, I've said it a few times already, but there's stories. I mean, you're making airmen feel appreciated that they're going to work and their troubles are understood, but also their successes are highlighted. And I think there's plenty of times where you're like, I feel like I'm doing a lot of cool stuff and I'm not getting any recognition for it. Not that that's the only factor that the human brain is focused on, but it does, does mean something when you get some sort of recognition about something you're like, okay, yeah, I made a difference and people can understand that, Hey, they value this difference that I made as well. And it's as a result of you just highlighting it, like giving them a platform to speak on. Absolutely. And you as well. Um, I guess I'll just end with giving you a shout out, Andrew. Um, you know, it's hard to even get an officer sometimes to come on my podcast because it's so ingrained in your culture to not share those stories or express those emotions. But ultimately, with this smaller team, I think the transparency, the the storytelling, the vulnerability ultimately humanizes you. It builds trust in those small teams and it, and it, it makes you, you, each other truly have your back. Like I'll, I, I don't see you as, you know, lieutenant. I see you as, you know, my friend, Andrew, who I, I don't want to let down because I know your values. I know you care about us. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different level of commitment. And so, Andrew, I do want to say thank you for the unique position you're in the perspective that you have from being an academy student and future Air Force officer to start a podcast where you're at now, to me, is just mind-blowing that that you had the courage, the confidence, and the forethought to start such an incredible platform right out the gate. And I'm just so excited to see how your career progresses and, and what you do with this platform. So, Thank you as well, Andrew, for for what you're doing. You're paving the way truly uh, in the academy and in the officer corps. Yeah, and thank you. And I'm sure there's a lot of future for us to collaborate in. So um, this 100. might not be the last time. I mean, definitely not the last time we speak. No, you got to come on mine yeah. next, right? So <laughs> that's going to happen. That will happen. You're coming on we'll mine. I'm going to hear all about your story next. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you. Well, it's great speaking with you, uh, Master Sergeant White. Um, quick promotion on your podcast so that Academy people can cue in on enlisted people's time. Um, hero front podcast. I'll let you do the rest. Yeah. So I just keep it simple. Herofrontpodcast.com has all everything that you need to find. And if you're on any social media and you simply search hero front or hero front podcast, I guarantee you, I probably have a presence on that app that you're on. And so by a simple Google search, you will have page after page of incredible content and interviews with amazing people around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, make sure you go check it out because just hearing about your jobs isn't the only aspect that you should be focusing on as an officer. You need to focus on your enlisted people as well. So make sure you go check out his stuff as well. But like I said, thank you for, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your story. All right. Thank you. See you.